and talking to students about career paths because you never know what path you're going to be on. Just keep saying yes to opportunities uh, that present themselves. And But as soon as you're in a position and, and you feel confident uh, in, in getting a out there on your own. And that can look like a lot of different things. But I find that the majority of people have that inner desire, that entrepreneurial itch that they're going to scratch at some point in some way, or they're going to talk a lot about it and never pull the trigger. She was 34. We put together a 15-year plan. And that was a plan for our family. That was a plan across, you know, all you know, fitness, faith, all different aspects, but also included finances. And it's been really neat just, you know, as we're nearing the halfway mark of that 15-year plan, we've been able to check a lot of goals off the list. And it's just a really momentum building uh, feeling and exercise. So I'd encourage people, you know, unless you put it on paper, you know, it's not going to happen. And uh, you just have such a better chance of success. And it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun when you can check it off. So uh, that's another little hack I've learned. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 270. A listener right in this last week asking why I didn't mention anything about our uh, podcast anniversary, and that is correct. I did miss that. I was in uh, Australia, New Zealand at the time, but uh, yeah, so I guess this will be five years now that we're into into this podcast, so great, uh, great celebration. I know several of you have written in asking, you know, lessons we've learned and, and all sorts of things like that, and has changed from some of the earlier episodes that we discussed some of these things, and plan on doing probably something like that as well as an update. Uh, Some people have asked uh, about the host, which I did do my own, uh, or I did do my own unveiling. I think that was back on episode number 161. But uh, probably do something here at the beginning of the year, end of the year, something to kind of wrap things up for uh, year five going into year six. So been at this uh, for, for quite some time now. I was going to read a uh, review we got to. This was uh, from Conspiracy Guru. Deep Dive. I love this podcast because there isn't any fluff. They use real numbers and people can relate to that. What good is an interview if people aren't comfortable talking about their actual finances? So appreciate that, Conspiracy Guru. That's definitely one of the the great things I think that we've tried to, to focus on, specifically getting guests that are relatable. Now, having said that, I'm staring at uh, episode 300 coming up here pretty soon and uh, throw it out there again. Love to have somebody on that's uh, got a net worth at 300 or close to it. I guess we kind of skipped 200 really because we had Jeremy on and Jeremy had a net worth of 300. Uh, when we talked to him initially, he was like, eh, it's probably 300 actually. So that's fine. We'll do you for episode 200. He was gracious enough to come on. So once again, we've kind of had, uh, you know, I guess the, the big number, 100, 200. I guess we have a couple couple people on that have been 100. And uh, then Jeremy at 300, so we skipped 200. But at any rate, would love to have, you know, if some got a super high net worth, Love to have you on an interview. I think there's definitely little nuggets that we all uh, pick up on from those that have got a, a different level of net worth. And the other request we've got a lot recently is people who are retired or at least of retirement age that are millionaires come on. I had some people write in that, that uh, want to hear from some people that are 
kind of 55 plus and get a different perspective that way. So kind of what you're doing with your investments is the market's turned down just a bit. And after we've had, you know, quite a bull run, I guess, in some case, one listener was mentioning, you know, I'm 45 years old to somebody who's, you know, almost late fifties, they've had um, a nice 13, you know, 12 to 13 year run. So get an interesting perspective on somebody who's at that age and now is seeing a little bit of their portfolio start to shrink. So at any, at least in the market, possibly real estate too, just depends on, on where you are in the country. At any rate, this week we have John. He has a net worth of several million. He has a paid for house that he's looking to refinance to take a mortgage out on, which is an interesting discussion with him. He has quite a bit in the market and investments in franchises along with crypto and some other small holdings, including some gold and silver in the safe. A great discussion with John. He's probably the first one that we've had on that is uh, has probably a significant portion uh, of his net worth in franchise operations. And he's also a franchise consultant uh, by day. It's kind of his day job now. So great interview with John. Really looking forward to it. Last week we had JJ, works in the private sector, but has a tech background. Net worth was $1.1 million, uh, which about half of that was in retirement accounts. He also had about three hundred grand in a brokerage and another three hundred k in rental real estate equity. So without any further delay, let's get into the episode with John. John, do you want to just give us a little about your background and what you're up to now? Yeah, absolutely, Jace. Thanks for having me on. Love the show. Uh, so I'm John Austinson here in Atlanta, Georgia, and I, I focus in an area I call non-food franchises, which is this wide array of industries outside of food areas that are really attracting a lot of uh, entrepreneurs. And I myself have invested in quite a few opportunities, but I uh, know live here in Atlanta. I've got uh, three young kids, beautiful wife, and I've had you know a great, solid career to, to date, uh, trans, uh, going across a number of different industries. And I'm happy to dig into that. Awesome. And what is your network today? Uh, several million. Awesome. And can you give our listeners just roughly, how do you break down your net worth? So I'm in the process of refinancing our home. Currently, we do not have a mortgage on it. And so it will change in the next few weeks. Hopefully, we'll all be able to deploy some more cash. But uh, no, today, roughly 50% of my net worth is tied up in our primary residence. We you know, recently went through a big renovation and uh, you know, it came in a little north of $2 million in the valuation. So I uh, figure it's time to take a mortgage and, and get some leverage on it. Outside of the primary residence, uh, stock market composes about 35% of my net worth. Um, and then that is further broken down by retirement accounts and non-retirement accounts, i.e. brokerage accounts. And roughly 50% is in retirement, whether it be IRAs, old 401ks, you know, both Roth and uh, uh, traditional IRAs as well. And then the other half would be in brokerage accounts with my advisor. He manages all things on the public side. Um, and then beyond that, uh, I've got about 5% in private equity investments, 2% in hard gold and silver coins uh, that I keep in a safe. I love the feel of those. Um, I've got 1% that is in crypto and I'm looking to expand that, uh, methodically over time. And then about 7%, uh, sitting in cash today. And that will, temporarily uh, expand as I deploy cash uh, after the refining. Awesome. And then you also have some small business ownership too? I do. So I left those out of the uh, the total net worth there. But uh, no, I'm invested as a minority partner in quite a few uh, franchise operations. For the most part, we've got good people running those for us. I'm typically partnered up with a few others. So not active day to day in those. Um, but that is an alternative asset that I see. Awesome. And we want to get into a little bit of that because that is pretty unique. But I want to ask you, so you've got a paid off house. 
How long did it take you to pay that off or did you buy it in cash? So we bought it in cash. It was in a desirable neighborhood in Buckhead here in Atlanta. And uh, we had to offer against a few other folks. And so it made sense to offer in cash. We'd come off uh, another home in which we'd made about 700000 uh, in equity. It had some nice appreciation. We'd done some fixing up over time. And uh, so we're able to deploy that into this uh, this home. But no, we went through about an 18-month construction process with this. Took a 1930s home and uh, gutted it, added on to it. And uh, uh really invested in it. Unfortunately, the appraisal did come out, you know, a good bit higher than what we put into it, which is always nice when you, you know, put a lot of sweat and equity into something. So currently, uh, you know, we bought it without a mortgage. And you mentioned you're going to go refi that, put some cash in the bank. What do you plan on doing with that cash? So a couple of things. Part of it, I will hand off to my advisor that, you know, he does a good job of keeping me sane and not make letting me make impulse decisions. For instance, the stock market's been up great the past two days. I likely would have pulled out last week given some uh, negative headwinds I saw out there. So, uh, you know, for me, I need that discipline. And so it's been great having him oversee and he's done a nice job. Uh, So part of it will go towards him. And then, you know, we'll probably have about a million or so that we'll pull out that we'll be able to deploy into more private lending um, as well as some crypto funds that I've got some friends involved in. So I want to be wise not to put it all in one place, but I want to uh, be methodical and really use leverage. I mean, that's a big piece of uh, my strategy going forward. You know, I want to be conservative, but at the same time, I want to be uh, wise around leverage. You know, nothing beats the mortgage rate you can get out there, except for really one other area, and that's um, portfolio loans. So you know, my advisor right now has a setup you know, through Schwab. I'm able to tap into and borrow against my portfolio up to 50% of its value at a 1% loan. And that's, you know, could go up over time. Uh, you know, it's a variable rate. However, even if it goes up a little bit, when you see inflation, I'm essentially getting paid to take money out <laughs> of, of my account if I can find a uh, opportunity to deploy it somewhere else. Do you do those portfolio loans often? So this will be the first time that I've done it. I, I've looked at doing it in the past and my uh, advisor wanted me to get to a certain level before he wanted me to go out on margin. But Right now, I plan on playing it pretty safe with a good bit of what I pull out there. There's what I see as an arbitrage opportunity where I can get a six to eight percent, pretty much guaranteed return. You tie up your money, you know, but it's a fixed, uh, fixed sort of investment over the long term. And so, if I can borrow at one or two percent, flip it immediately into a six to eight percent, it's a no-brainer. And you said you're going to do up to fifty percent of your portfolio value. Correct. Correct. So don't have to liquidate any assets. I'm not pulling anything out, but I can borrow up to 50% on margin. Yep. So let's talk a little bit about crypto real quick, because that is something that's come up a lot. I think it's been a big thing over the last year or so. Why are you going to deploy more into crypto and what's kind of your thought process as it relates to crypto? And is there particular ones that, that you like more than others? Yeah, you know, I, I don't play <laughs> play an expert even on TV when it comes to crypto. And so I, right now I'm in Coinbase, Bitcoin, Algo, and Ethereum. Heard a uh, economist recently, a very well-respected uh, gentleman in his 60s, that said he has pretty much doubled down on Ethereum. That's where all of his assets are. He's out of the public markets, and that was pretty eye-opening to me. It was at a conference with some other business owners and some thought leaders, and uh, to hear him say that. It, it, so I'm right now. I, I'm still in that investigative phase. I, I, you know, outside of those investments I have today, it's probably you know sixty or seventy thousand I have in, in crypto. There are some backdoor opportunities through some people I know into crypto funds that have had just an amazing track record. Now, would I ever put anything into crypto that I 
can't see myself, you know, potentially losing a hundred percent. No, I, I'm going to play conservative, but I definitely want to have that exposure within my portfolio. So John, before we get into to the franchises, where did this all start or where did your career start and maybe back up and kind of give us a little bit of a, a journey of, you know, how John's evolved? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, grew up, my father was an attorney and, uh, you know, really smart guy, but he was always worked for himself and did a lot of pro bono work for people in our church and elsewhere, you know, very admirable, but he never struck it big and uh, financially. And so he put all four, three of my siblings, myself through private school However, then I was on my own to pay for college and really you know, take off after that. And so we're now in a position where we're actually helping our parents out some uh, in hindsight. But no, after the University of Georgia, I went to work for Accenture, got to do some neat things internationally just from a consulting standpoint. I went back to grad school and, and I love going back and, and talking to students about career paths because you never know what path you're going to be on. Just keep saying yes to opportunities uh, that present themselves. And for me, that took me to India, came back to grad school, ended up going to work for Carter's Oshkosh Bagash, uh, based here in Atlanta, and uh, never thought I'd be in the children's apparel industry, uh, You know, but worked with clients like Costco and Macy's and other large retailers out there. And we we sold hundreds of millions every year in baby clothes to these retailers, uh, but got to work for the president and do some neat things uh, within the company. And, and they were always very good to me, allowed me to take on additional responsibility over time. And I'd say that's where my wealth building really began. They were very kind and paying above market salaries and then very uh, um, generous matches when it came to 401ks and with bonuses and with profit sharing. And I was able to get into the equity program um, at a very early stage. Uh, and as a result, as their stock price went up over time and I had restricted shares and options, that really created a snowball effect where that vesting every year uh, really started adding up. So, you know, it probably came to close to 400 to 500,000 that I all in that I was able to pull in, uh, you know, d- towards the latter time of my time there. But like so many others, I had that desire to do something a little more entrepreneurial. And, and so we'll go down that path in a minute of what I did on the franchise side and, and through business ownership. But I'd say that corporate experience, just, uh, you know, being able to save and, you know, I made a few real estate investments. Some were good, some were not. Uh, back in the 08 crash, I, I bought some raw land shortly before that, a few pieces with a partner. And you know, last year we ended up selling those for literally pennies on the dollar. And uh, you know, and so those did not work out. They kind of off, were offset by a couple of rental properties I had. I had two different rentals that appreciated in value, also cash flowed. And I'm a big believer in single family homes, uh, renting those out. Uh, last year, I was at the point where I wasn't large enough to hire a property manager to to manage my two-house two portfolio, but at the same time, I didn't want to uh, continue doing the repairs uh, myself or you know, getting those tenant phone calls. So we ended up selling those uh, this past year and those offset the losses on the other side. But no, big believer in real estate, you know, our, our, our last two primary residences, we've been able to, to you know, tax-free make some really good uh, equity uh, advances off of those. They say money can't buy happiness, but not worrying about your money comes close. That's where Chime can help you smile more. You were just named the number one most loved banking app with payday up to two days early, fee-free overdrafts up to $200. They offer financial peace of mind in your wallet. All of this with no annual fees, large security deposits, 
or credit checks to apply. See for yourself why Chime is so loved at Chime.com slash millionaire. That's Chime.com slash millionaire. Chime is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. Early access to direct deposit funds dependent on payer. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. See chime.com dash spot me. Chime was the 2021 number one most downloaded banking app in the United States according to Aptopia. So at what point did you start getting interested or have this entrepreneurial bug or did you always have it from the beginning? Oh, from the beginning. And, and what I find, I talk to enough people around the country that, you know, so many people have this desire to build their own kingdom and empire instead of building someone else's. And I think it's a good idea to, to get that experience out there working for someone else. But as soon as you're in a position and, and you feel confident uh, in getting out there on your own, and that can look like a lot of different things, but I find that the majority of people have that inner desire, that entrepreneurial itch that they're going to scratch at some point in some way, or they're going to talk a lot about it and never pull the trigger. So what made you finally pull that trigger? Yeah, so I was, so I'm 42 now, I think it was 36 at the time, and I wanted to get with a smaller private company. To me, leaving the public company world, that was the first step. Long story short ended up with shelf genie franchise system had the opportunity to come in and serve as our president based here in atlanta but we had franchisees all around north america uh shelf genie is custom pull out shelving for kitchens and pantries and so i had the opportunity to lead uh their marketing teams the call center and technology team and really support all these small business owners and it really opened up my eyes to this world of non-food franchises there are a lot of different paths out there uh, to making money that are maybe a little more risk averse and predictable than if you were to just go out there and, and start on your own. So that led me to really falling in love with franchising with business ownership. And from there, I uh, ended up partnering with a founder. We spun off. We bought it into a few franchises and, as investments ourselves. And now I get the opportunity as a broker and consultant to spend most of my time working with people all around the country, helping to take them through a pretty streamlined process and introduce them to um, a handful of vetted brands that we feel really strongly about uh, and helping them kind of every step of the way. Interesting. So as you've made that transition and now you have a lot more of a focus right on non-food is that correct that's correct and you know it, it, so many of your listeners will have different industries that they're in the more you can niche down the better and that's what i've done is i've kind of created a category <laughs> because when people think uh, franchising oftentimes they think fast food and so I, I call what I do non-food franchising. So just for our listeners, what would that entail? Maybe, you know, are we talking about cleaning companies or what does that what does that look like non-food franchises? Maybe if I just share a few examples of some recent deals. So today I had a client, a former Wall Street attorney outside of Boston, buy a gutter business. Never thought he'd be in the gutter business, but there's a lot of money to be made in the, in there. And so I, I had a couple this past Friday that uh, you know, worked for the University of Arkansas out in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and for they wanted a side hustle. They bought a um, it's a fitness 
concept for those 50 and over that don't like the big box gym. It's a smaller footprint. It's great technology. So they got really excited about that. Running it is what we call semi-absentee on the side. Uh, I had a client recently buy into a roll-off dumpster business. And he was already a business owner, had a few different businesses. I felt that this would be a good complement. I've got a client in Atlanta uh, that has a real estate brokerage and he's buying into a property management franchise that he feels would be a, be a good complement. I'd say right now, <laughs> if I had to find what we're seeing out there, non-sexy is the new sexy. You know, People love things that are like essential services. You mentioned the cleaning business. They love things that are understandable, that are somewhat Amazon resistant, maybe COVID resistant. Um, you know, I just did a 10-pack oil change deal uh, a couple of weeks ago, and they they use prefabricated buildings and unused parking spaces of retailers. And so it's things like that. They're a little unique. Um, you know, the serve pro model, you know, things that are essential, that are, will always be there. People love those. Uh, but we still, you know, do some neat ones, uh, you know, that they're a different take, whether it be car washes or laundromats. Uh, stuff like that. So we're seeing more interest in franchising than we ever have before. I mean, our placements year to date are almost double what they were last year, which was almost double what they were the year before. And I really think COVID's causing a lot of people to, to step out and say, you know, maybe now's the time to make a move and scratch that itch. Maybe the path I need to be on is something with a little more control and flexibility and be my own boss and, and build my own empire instead of someone else's. So it's a it's a lot of fun to, to be out there right now. It's also really competitive. A lot of the great brands are going really fast in good markets. So I try to keep a good pulse on what's coming down the chute uh, from an emerging brand standpoint, and then uh, you know jump on those and introduce them to my clients. So I mean, just high level, what does it look like for these service based franchises? Revenue, profit potential? Can they really be run semi passive, or is this somebody that's going to take an active you know, role in the day to day. I'd say about half of my clients are looking to do a semi-passive, where they keep their day job and maybe they hire a general manager to run the business. Um, of course, it comes down to having the, the right general manager. I mean, it, ultimately, people matter. Another half are running them as an owner operator, and you know, I'd say on the low end, uh, you can get into a lot of these services businesses for right around a hundred thousand dollars, including the franchise fees and startup cost. You know, this would be a non-brick and mortar, uh, you know, like you mentioned, cleaning, pool cleaning, let's say, or home cleaning or um, carpet cleaning or roofing or you know, gutters, insulation, those kind of businesses. You can get in for as little as 100000 maybe 125 And from there, uh, I mean, oftentimes by the second year, they're doing 500000 or so in revenue, oftentimes at a 20 to 30% operating margin end of the day after you paid all your expenses. And so the strategy there is to buy a couple of territories and maybe you launch with one and then you open up the next one six months down the road, next one year down the road. So you're able to scale up that one business. Other clients of mine like the idea of having multiple businesses. The one I, the client that I just did the oil change business with, they're also buying into a driveway business. Uh, they're also actually franchising their flooring business. And so uh, it, it, franchising can be a great path of, to scale an existing business. And we see more and more companies think, realizing that you know, it makes a lot of sense uh, to bring in owners around the country to help you build it out uh, and create that relationship. So um, anyway, th- those are a couple of thoughts, but I'd say by and large, it is eye-opening to people when they understand the returns you can make. I mean, some of the businesses uh, that we work with have margins as high as 40 to 50%. And that's end of the day. It's not gross margin. I'm talking about what are you putting in your pocket? And so when you're making 40% on a $1 million business and you're all in on the business with 200,000, you do the math, the returns are unbeatable. Now, nothing is easy. It's not set and forget. You still have to be somewhat involved. 
but the potential is definitely there. Yeah, let's, you know, you being a real estate investor, have invested in real estate, or maybe is, is probably the better way to explain mm-hmm. it. How does somebody kind of correlate, you know, it's really easy. Somebody goes, hey, I got a single family house. I understand it. Maybe bridge the gap for our listeners a little bit on, on how somebody who maybe is investing in real estate or even in the stock market, how do they think about investing in a, a franchise, these small businesses? Yeah. No, I call franchising an asset class. And I give a talk to investors oftentimes where it's, hey, stock market's up here, interest rates down here, only so many good real estate deals to be had. Where else are you going to invest outside of, let's say, crypto and baseball cards? <laughs> and uh, you know, with business ownership, it does open up the, the potential to not just build cash flows, but you know, to build an asset that should have appreciation. Um, but also, you're able to write off a lot of expenses. And so oftentimes, that's overlooked. So it's kind of a three-edge uh, prong there. But I, more than half of my uh, clients are real estate investors. A lot of them have single-family homes or multifamily or a little bit of commercial. And so... For them, it's understanding, hey, let's diversify a little bit further. And, you know, nothing's easy. It does take some time. But when you buy into a franchise versus just going out and starting from scratch, some of the benefits that I see are, one, you've got that franchisor on the sidelines, almost acting as a coach, you know, very aligned interest. The better you do, the better he does. He's providing that support and that coaching along the way. You've got the playbook. You know, you're not having to start from scratch of figuring out, can this make money? You know it can make money. It's just, you know, what is that fastest path? So you're really on third base rather than starting on first base, if you will. You've got other franchisees around the country that, you know, have maybe tested different marketing vehicles or, you know, other figure out where the best hiring pools are that you can tap into. Um, and so you're able to glean from those insights uh, as well as, you know, going in, you know that if you run it halfway decent, what kind of return should you get? Every franchise system has what's called an FDD or franchise disclosure document. Uh, Within that, there's an item 19 section, which breaks out the financial performance of other franchise owners in the system. So you get to understand going in eyes wide open, what is that potential? You also get to talk to other owners prior to signing the agreement. So the goal is for you to have as much information before making that decision as possible. Uh, So definitely increases your likelihood of success. Yeah. How does one go about selecting maybe the right one for them or or even exploring these options? Yeah. You know, great question. It can be a little overwhelming. Uh, Within the U.S. alone, there's over 4,000 franchise systems. And with these franchise systems, you know, once you take out the food related ones, I'd say we're down to probably half of them. Just call them 2,000. And for me, I'm affiliated with the franchise consulting company. It's one of the largest brokerages in the U.S. And so we have vetted collectively over 300 franchise brands that we have selected to partner with that we feel really strongly about uh, and we're proud to introduce our clients. So, you know, that, that includes the leadership teams, the financial model, the unique within their niche. Um, so we've done a lot of that legwork for you already. We also see what's going on behind the scenes. We know, uh, you know, you may go to a, a brand's website and see five locations. Well, I could tell you on the back end that 80 more locations are opening in the next six months. You know, it's that kind of information uh, that I'm able to, to tap into. Additionally, uh, what we've done is really streamlined the process. And so first off, the process is entirely free uh, for all my clients. I get paid by the franchisors. None of that gets passed on to my clients. It's just a sales and marketing expense for them. Uh, so it's a great model from my standpoint. But no, when, when I engage with a client, I get to know them, have a couple of calls, have them fill out some information, and then I'll present them with opportunities that that could be a good match for them. You know, what do I see resonating with other people around the country with similar backgrounds to themselves, with a similar interest in uh, the day-to-day involvement? And you know, what is that financial return they're looking for? Do they like large teams or small teams within their market? Where are the needs? 
know, once we start peeling back this onion, it's a lot of fun for me in the matchmaking process because say over 85, 90% of my clients end up in an industry they never thought they would be in, but it makes a lot of sense. And, um, and so we have a lot of fun going through looking at different opportunities together. Uh, but the goal is to do the vetting for you and to do the streamlining of the process so that we can then present you with five, six, seven opportunities in your market that are available that could uh, be a good fit for you. Interesting. So in terms of your personal you know, journey with franchises and, you know, you still got some market investments in your house. How do you look at your investments as a, on a go forward basis? Where are each dollar flowing into? How much are you putting still in the market, real estate, franchises, et cetera? Yeah. So I'm a member of the entrepreneurs organization and I've got a great group in there, our forum. And we've been talking a lot about this. What does it look like? How do we go from trading time for money um, and it's a conversation I have with a lot of my clients. Everyone is looking for a more passive way to build wealth over time, especially once you get into your 40s. You know, the earlier you can start, the better. And so for me, that's one lens through which I see things is what will take the least amount of effort. Uh, how do I diversify? And, you know, I've really been studying up on inflation and kind of where we're going. I, I believe federal governments and central banks are probably the two most powerful forces out there. And so how do I align with, with the fact that they're probably going to continue printing money because they've got so much debt they need to, to get out of it. And so I, I, I am a big fan of real estate. I, I'd say to shore up where I am today, I'd like to get a few more real estate properties uh, going forward, um, you know, cash flowing. So I'm looking at some up in the mountains right now uh, that, that I really like as well as some here in Atlanta in, in good neighborhoods. Um, but so many people are looking at those right now. And so I'm trying to, differentiate a little bit, maybe go with, you know, the six hundred, seven hundred thousand dollar homes that can rent out for a little bit more because everyone else is looking at the two hundred, three hundred today. And so I feel like that's somewhat saturated. And so that would be one avenue. But no, I'm going to continue to, you know, hand off several hundred thousand, you know, every year to my advisor, let him put it to work. You know, that's just been a proven methodology over time. Um, you know, don't bet against the stock market long term. And uh, I, I'm looking to use leverage in a bigger way. I, like I talked about, you know, getting the mortgage, getting the uh, the um, the loan, because with inflation, inflation is obviously that silent tax. It reduces the value of assets, but it also reduces the value of debt. So if you're able to take out debt and you're and never do anything beyond control and you know, beyond your means, but over time, those fixed payments are worth a whole lot less and they're a lot easier to make over time. So I think that's something that people are starting to catch on to is the use of leverage to fight inflation. But no, I'm going to continue diversifying. I do think having the, the silver coins and gold coins in the safe, I'll continue to, to build that up, probably buy a little more ammo for a rainy day. Um, so just make sure that it's well-rounded and uh, a big focus for me, my oldest child is 10 years old. I want to start teaching that financial literacy uh, to him. Um, you know, Greenlight's got a great card out there today. Uh, so I want to incorporate that. That's a big goal for next year is to kind of educate him as well on, on how to invest and put off today's pleasures for uh, tomorrow's gain. Awesome. Okay, so you talked a little bit about teaching that next generation and, and, and Greenlight. Are there things that you've done in your family to kind of start that process already? You know, I think, uh, you know, it's easy for me to say a lot to my kids, but they catch what you don't say. And they can't, you know, and so my son sees me working hard every day. He, you know, I think that's ingrained in him. He sees me, you know, meeting with my advisor, talking about different franchises that I'm investing in. He's helped me fix up some real estate properties in the past. So I think a lot of that just exposure to him that, hey, this is how we do things. 
uh, when I grew up, oftentimes we were living paycheck to paycheck. So the money conversations that my parents had, for me, I said, hey, I want to have it different. When, you know, I want my wife and I have to have different conversations in the future. And we've been fortunate that we've set ourselves up to have different conversations. But I think that's healthy. But I do try to share with him that we are need to be very grateful for what we have and that it didn't just wasn't just given to us. You know, I had to work for every dollar that, that I ever made. Um, nothing was handed off. And, uh, and so instilling a work ethic and some of those values, I think, are the biggest thing. And then, uh, you know, I, I am having a lot of fun with him right now. He's in an investment club at school. First time he's been exposed to the stock market. So he's coming home with some questions. I love answering those. So That's um, awesome. I, I've tried pushing him a little more in the past. Yeah. And now I'm letting, you know, when the, when the student's ready, the teacher will show up. <laughs> How long have you been working with your financial advisor? Yeah, so with this advisor, just over a year now. Um, so I've had two different advisors prior to this over time. And, you know, my tendency has been to start thinking that I was smarter. You know, I'd gone to business school and I, I nerd out on research and tax strategies. And everything. I just enjoy that. And so I start thinking that I'm smarter than my advisor and then I'll pull out. With this one, this guy definitely is, uh, you know, has an impressive resume. I was lucky to be able to get in with him. I uh, typically works with clients with a higher net worth than myself. Um, so I'm in, in it with him for the long run, I think. And how do you compensate him? Yes, yeah, so he gets a percentage of the uh, overall portfolio. So it's entirely fiduciary. And that's annually? Uh, he takes out quarterly. Quarterly? Okay. Yep. Cool. So John, let's let's wrap up here with with some rapid fire questions. What is the most expensive meal out you've ever paid for? I think $750 and it was a small group of maybe uh, five of us. And so it ended up being a fairly high. So nothing too extravagant, but uh, right around that ballpark. What's been the, the coolest experience that you've had or that you've taken your family on, you know, in regards to a trip and how much did it cost? Yeah. So, you know, with COVID the last couple of years, we've had to, to hang a little tight domestically, but and I've traveled more so with just some friends of mine, but um, my wife and I went to Greece years ago and we still look back at a few of those days. So those, those were our best days ever, you know, just perfect days. Um, I can't wait to take my kids to Europe and uh, it just start exposing them to the world. I, you know, that's one of my big goals going forward is, is to do a lot of travel. Do you know roughly what you spend on those trips? You know, I, I've always had so many points with uh, airlines and hotels. <laughs> I'd say the most expensive vacation we've ever taken is probably four or 5000 you know, to Maui. But um, looking forward to spending more in the, in the years ahead. Okay. What about the most expensive car you've ever purchased? Yeah, so $40,000 uh, Tahoe, two years old. I only buy used. I don't invest in cars. We've got a fairly up-to-date, you know, Lexus sedans in in, um, in a Tahoe, but they're both at least five or six years old, and we'll drive them for another five years. So don't try to keep up with the Joneses in that department. When you buy used, are, are you looking for a certain mileage or, or age in the car? Yes, yeah, so we live in the city, and we don't drive that much on an annual basis. Um, and so we are typically looking at, I like to look at uh, the first year of a new model. And so, uh, you know, the Tahoe that we bought, I think was a 2015. Well, that was the first year that came out with the new model. And so it stays looking newer, uh, you know, for a longer period of time rather than dated. And so that's been one strategy that I've taken. Interesting. And you buy it at two years old or three years old or? Yeah, typically two to three years old. Awesome. Do your friends know of your wealth? And family? My friends don't. Uh, they know the home that we live in, which can help them kind of back into, uh, you know, at least the, the overall level that we're in. My family knows that we've done well, but they don't know probably as well as we have done. Um, there is a, so my forum, 
within the entrepreneurs organization, seven other guys. I opened up to them. We all shared our numbers recently for the first time where we really got into our net worth and what our investment strategy is. And, and that was freeing in a way. You know, I, I'd had some success and uh, just to kind of hear what other people's number and what their goal uh, was. You know, a neat exercise my wife and I went through about six years ago when we were 35, she was 34, we put together a 15-year plan. And that was a plan for our family. That was a plan across, you know, all, you know, fitness, faith, all different aspects, but also included finances. And it's been really neat just, you know, as we're nearing the halfway mark of that 15-year plan, we've been able to check a lot of goals off the list. And it's just a really momentum building uh, feeling and exercise. So I'd encourage people, you know, unless you put it on paper, you know, it's not going to happen. And uh, you just have such a better chance of success. And it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun when you can check it off. So uh, that's another little hack I've learned. Do you review that frequently? You know, not frequently. I, I'd say at least once a year, my wife and I will go through the 15-year plan. But then for myself, I I also nerd out on goal setting. And so, you know, I'll have my annual plan that I break into quarters. And uh, a lot of that comes down to my income for the year that, that I like to break out and, and compete against myself. But, you know, I, I'm in that phase of uh, the year right now when I'm thinking about January. So I'm excited to, to get after the goal setting again. What was your GPA in high school or college or both? Yeah, I'll, I was always a 3.9 student. So found time to, to have fun, but also kept it uh, kept it focused in the classroom. How much TV do you watch a week? Very little. So I love college football, my Georgia Bulldogs. So I'll watch every Georgia football game uh, and then I'll catch some other games. But oftentimes it's with a laptop open and, you know, my, my wife and I'll flip on Netflix and neither of us will really watch. We just, you know, sometimes like having the noise in the background. So very little. There are really no sitcoms that we follow. There's um, no mindless TV. I'll have the, you. I'll turn YouTube on and, and listen to the news in the background from time to time. Uh, but most of what I listen to when it comes to podcasts, I'd say that's where I consume a lot of information is podcasts and audiobooks. A lot of it is around investing and small business ownership. And a lot of that serves as both education and motivation for me. Do you read a lot of books a year? I do, but uh, the majority of the books are, are consumed uh, you know, while I'm driving around exercising audio. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. We've heard that so much more lately that it's just, we've we've come such to this digital world and it's so much easier when you're driving or you know working out or whatever to consume that stuff. Kind of kills two birds with one stone in a way. Absolutely. So in terms of this 15-year plan, what's the big goal for you out there that you're still working towards? Yeah, so my number, and I'll just be candid here, is 12 million. I want to have 12 million in net worth. And I've kind of broken it down as to how how much of that, uh, you know, will be invested in in assets that can kick off, you know, in the annual return for me uh, that I pull out from, uh, you know, live off of, and then a portion that will, you know, be in there for the long term, really building that inheritance for my kids over time. So it was really interesting when I talked with other business owners. Quite a few of them had numbers right around that twelve million mark too, which, um, you know, we can live off less. I mean, absolutely. But that's the goal, um, I'd say, over the next you know, seven to 10 years is, is to land there and over time start trimming back the hours that I work. You know, right now, I feel like I've got great flexibility in my schedule, but look to increase that over time and, and do a lot more pro bono work. You know, I coach my kids' sports teams and volunteer in different capacities, but I want to be able to do more of that as a percentage of my time. So um, I'd say others that are like minded to myself. We're laser focused on time versus money right now and, uh, and making that trade off. And I think the older you get, the more you realize you can always make more money. You can always get more time. So while the kids are young, I just don't want to ever look back and have regrets at not spending time with them. Do you know roughly how much you spend a year? 
Yeah, we're probably in the 175 ballpark. Uh, when we first got married, we tracked spending very closely. You know, we're in a position now where it's not a good use of my time to track it as long as we keep it within, you know, under control. I mean, I, I use QuickBooks. I know what's going on, but I know we're not looking at things under a microscope. Instead, using that energy to focus on the top line. If we can keep the top line revenue moving, it's going to take care of everything. What do you splurge on or do you splurge on anything in your opinion? Yeah. Um, <laughs> splurge for me might be going out and getting a massage after a stressful week. <laughs> that's a that's a small <laughs> splurge. Uh, but no, we like to we like to travel and we do like to get out and, and have dinners. But our biggest splurge is what we did with our house. I and mean, we put in the pool and the turf, and the artificial turf in the back and and it really took a, a few, you know, did the gas line to the fire pit. Just little things that, you know, that do add up but we're going to get all the use out of those and they're going to go towards making memories. And um, I'm sitting in my carriage house office right now. And that was a splurge to just the way that we finished it out. So that, that we, in, we invest in things that I, I think will have a residual value over time. Uh, something that's newer for me is uh, art. I'm starting to get into art. That's never been on my radar, but recognizing that that's another investment class and it's something that we can enjoy. Um, you know, we do a lot of hospitality and hosting in our home. And, and so we're starting to get into art. We're, we're very much novices at this time. And one other thing that, you know, I, I wouldn't call this a splurge, but it is a path that, that's important to us that we're moving down is, is being able to give and, uh, you know, being a good steward of what we've been given. And, you know, I'm a big fan of donor advice funds. Just started using one myself about two years ago where you can, contribute appreciated stock into an account like with Schwab in this case. And, uh, you know, we've got about a hundred thousand in there and we'll give out, you know, at least half of that every year um, and hopefully build that up over time. But uh, with the donor advised fund, it just allows you very easily to make gifts of assets to uh, charitable organizations and you can time your contributions to uh, to the tax years where it makes the most sense. And so big, big fan of that. If anyone hasn't looked into it, I'd encourage. Once again, that's John Ostensen, net worth over a million dollars. Appreciate you coming on the show today. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.